Hey, hey, good morning. Uh, if you're here, it means you don't have the flu, so congratulations on that. Uh, man, so glad that you're with us today. Uh, why don't you do this? Why don't you grab your Bibles and jump over to Acts 19? Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is revival. We're going to talk about revival out of Acts 19. This is something that we have in the past talked a little bit about, but quite frankly, this is just something that I think uh, you could never hear too much of and something that we want to lean into before we jump into the book of Hosea. So Acts 19, while you're turning there, uh, let me pray for us. Jesus, would you move today? Uh, would you, would you uh, allow us to see what it is that you did in this passage? And then I pray that you would immediately give us hunger and desire for what happened here to happen in our lives, for what happened here to happen in our city. So come and move. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, the word revival, just throwing that out, uh, already you start to think about so many different things. A lot of things come to mind. Uh, depending on where you're from, if you're from the Midwest, like probably most of you are, when you hear the word revival, what you get is this image of this guy kind of showing up at a church for a week at a time and yelling his sermons at the people and kind of getting them all riled up and then moving on to the next city. And then kind of very quickly life goes back to normal and that's your concept of revival when you think about it. If you came from more of a Pentecostal tra tradition, when you hear the word revival, what you think of is just very simply normal Christianity. Your expectation is that every Sunday is going to be revival and if it's not revival, then you're probably lukewarm. And so, you know, we're going to expect extravagant moves of God and dramatic expressions of the Spirit to, to blow. And that's just normal, average Christianity. Revival should be the norm. Uh, if you're here, by the way, and you're not a Christian, welcome. And for you, when you hear the word revival, maybe if you don't have any background with the church, it's kind of confusing. Like, w what is this all about? If Christianity is primarily about life in God, then why does something that has been made alive need to be revived again. So there's all this confusion surrounding revival. What I want to do is I just want to take you to one of the revivals that we see in Scripture. This is in Acts 19. And the reason why I want to take you here is because something happens to this city that as I think about our city and I think about us being a church for the city, this is what my prayer is for our congregation. This is my prayer for what God wants to do in our city through our church. So we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle and look at uh, the revival that took place. And, and my hope is that by the end of this, you will start to have this desire birthed in you, if you don't already, for God to move in a, in a dramatic way, both in your own life in your family, but then also in our city. So that's where we're headed. Uh, and, and Acts 19, let me just quickly set this up for you before we get in so you have context of what's actually happening in this passage. The Apostle Paul had been in this city, the city of Ephesus, for a little over two years. Uh, if you're curious, where is Ephesus? Ephesus is modern-day Turkey, right? So this is about 2,000 years ago in modern-day Turkey, and the Apostle Paul had spent about two years just telling people about Jesus. He'd actually rented out a, a room in the city called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he had just kind of set up shop every day for about two years and would invite people from about noon to about 4 p.m., and he would just lecture and teach on Jesus and answer people's questions. And over time, at some point, we don't know when, but at some point, a revival started to break out in the city of Ephesus, and we'll read about it. So chapter 19, look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, 
and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So just as a side note, these are a group of Jewish people. They don't actually uh, submit their hearts and lives to Jesus. They just think that Jesus is like this uh, magical pixie dust that if you say his name, then evil spirits will come out of people. So uh, look at what happens. Uh, Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? It's probably the most snarky demon in the New Testament, right? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, Let me just, as a side note here, in junior high or high school, whenever a fight would break out, uh, it was always tough to know who won the fight, Almost always. There may be a few exceptions, but very tough to know who actually won that fight. But if you leave a fight without your pants on and you're bloody, then you know that you lost the fight, right? This is seven dudes with one guy that's possessed with a demon, and they leave the fight completely naked and bloodied. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And look at what happens. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, look at what they're doing, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is about the modern equivalent of $6 million worth of books. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Three quick observations that I want to make out of that passage. Three quick ones. Uh, There are three different things going on. Uh, There's dead, man-centered religion. There is normal, real Christianity. And then there's revival happening. All three are taking place in this passage of Acts 19. Uh, The first thing that we see is dead, man-centered religion. And this is really with the sons of Sceva, right? And what they're doing is they're just taking the name of Jesus and they're invoking it as if it has this magical power that regardless of your relationship with Jesus, Jesus, if you just throw his name out there, then he's going to do something for you that's really dramatic and powerful. And by the way, this is something that happens in Oklahoma all the time where people don't actually embrace Jesus because they want Jesus. They embrace Jesus because Jesus is going to get them a better marriage or Jesus is going to fix their life or help, help them with their addiction. And so what happens a lot of times in Oklahoma is that for many people, Jesus becomes the means to an end. And, and when you have Jesus as a means to an end rather than Jesus being the end, you have dead man-centered religion And here's the big, big news here. It doesn't work. Have you noticed? I talk to people in our city and they're like, yeah, I I tried Jesus and he didn't make my marriage better. Or I tried Jesus and I, my my addiction was still there. I tried, and it's almost like they've tried this thing called Jesus and they're using him as a means to an end. It doesn't work. Dead, man-centered religion. A lot of people are turned off to Christianity because of this reality of just dead, man-centered religion. Jesus isn't a means to an end. He is the end right? 
That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see isn't dead man-centered religion. We actually see real Christianity happening here. There are two things taking place that kind of tee us off that this is beautiful, this is real. They're, one, extolling the name of Jesus. What does that mean? That just means they're praising Jesus, they're celebrating Jesus, they're, they're delighting in the person of Jesus, not as a means to get them something, but because he is the thing that they want. And not only are they extolling the name of Jesus, the second thing that they're doing is they're confessing and they're repenting of their sins. This is profound. They actually come confessing their sins. One of the things that happens in real Christianity is that the greatest places of shame in your story now get turned around to where that's no longer stuff you have to hide because you've actually experienced the grace and mercy of God there. That's real Christianity. It's, it's when you, you actually extol, you love, you treasure Jesus for who he is, and it gives you this freedom to start confessing and turning away from the sin that you used to pursue. But then the third thing that's happening here, and this is what I want to look at with you, there's revival taking place. See, there's a difference between normal, real, basic Christianity and revival, What's happening in revival? Well, in addition to them just confessing their sin, here's a few things that are taking place. There's extraordinary miracles taking place. Uh, did you notice how it said that at the very beginning of 11? It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So think about this. You have miracles, and then you have extraordinary miracles. Miracles are a big deal. Like uh, our friend Reuben, like we said last week, got healed of stomach cancer. That's a big deal. That's a miracle, right? What's an extraordinary miracle? If that's a miracle, an extraordinary miracle is what we read about with Paul, where literally like his handkerchief and his apron, they're touching sick people and those sick people are healed. That is an extraordinary miracle. That kind of teases us off that something dramatic is happening. The Spirit of God is moving in big ways. This is revival. In addition to that, There's the tangible fear of God, not just on a few individuals, but on the entire city. It says that the whole area was, that they had this fear and this awe of God. That's how you know that revival is taking place when just people from all over are starting to come awake to the reality of who God is. In addition to that, there's this dramatic and widespread repentance. It's not a couple people, it's not a few individuals coming and confessing their sin and really repenting and walking with Jesus. This is like thousands and thousands of people in this region bringing their magic books, this thing that they used to look to uh, for the good life, and they're burning it. And they're saying, we're, we're no longer going to this, we're now going to Jesus. This is incredible. And then finally, the kingdom of God was advancing in profound ways. Uh, we didn't read it, but earlier in chapter 19, it said that by the time Paul was done in, in Ephesus, there wasn't a person in Asia that had not heard the word of the Lord. Think about that. Everyone around, whether they believed in Jesus or not, you're like, yeah, we've heard of that. God was moving in such a dramatic way that there's this widespread repentance, this widespread revival, miracles were taking place, the whole city was in awe of God, and people who kind of initially were opposed to Jesus were now very much awake to who God was and what God was doing, and their hearts were focused on him. That's revival. Now, here's what's really interesting. This revival that's taking place, it actually started to change the city. And this is what I want you to look at. It actually started to have a dramatic impact on the social fabric of the city of Ephesus. So look at Acts 19, because this revival is going to lead to a riot. Look at verse 23. 
About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the working men and similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Look at what he says. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. If you were to travel to Asia, uh, there are ruins of this great temple Artemis there that people from all over Asia would come and they would worship this goddess. Uh, And and this this was a big deal in Ephesus. But then look at verse 28. When they heard this, the crowd that Demetrius is stirring up, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, look at this, just the rage of the city, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So let me pause there. Let me just kind of paint this picture. What's happening is that these silversmiths that were making these gods, these little idols for people to purchase and worship, what was happening is that so many people were becoming Christians that they were starting to lose money. And so what this silversmith does is he kind of orchestrates this riot in the city and the whole place goes bananas and they start just freaking out and they're yelling and they're screaming. And and, and here's the point I want to make. The, the, the actual revival that God was pouring out on his people was having an impact that the city could actually feel. Can you imagine if the same thing happened in our day? Where like so many people became Christians that the porn industry started to lose money and started to freak out about that. Can you imagine if so many people were becoming Christians that the, the, the sex trafficking industry was completely done away with or, or whatever? I mean, it was just like, this is what's happening in Ephesus. God was working and moving in such dramatic ways. The city could actually feel it. There was a riot that erupted. This goes on, and I don't have time to read the rest of the passage, but this goes on, and eventually the riot stops. But the big idea here is that Christianity was felt. Now, pause for just a minute. And think about Christianity today in Oklahoma, your own Christianity, versus this in the first century. And here's what I've found, that on all the exterior appearances of what's taking place in Oklahoma, it would kind of look like Christianity is absolutely killing it. It's a mad success in Oklahoma. Here's what I mean. Uh, Anytime I have friends that don't live in the Midwest that come to visit, um, they're always shocked 
at how many churches are in every corner. And I forget. I don't know if you forget. I kind of forget that it's like, oh yeah, this is just, you know, it's not odd to see three churches on one corner. We kind of think, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I wonder if they could get along. Probably not. Uh, but if you come from out of town and you drive through Oklahoma, you will be shocked at how many churches are here. One of my friends uh, he, he lives in Brea, California, and he was like, man, I cannot believe it. I passed, I was in the car for 10 minutes, and I must have passed 30 churches. And I was like, yeah? You know? And, and here's the point. Like, we often forget this, but if you were just to zoom out and look at Oklahoma as a whole, you would think, we are killing it as Christians, aren't we? Churches on every corner. And it's not, by the way, that there's empty churches all over the place. There are a few. But a recent Gallup poll was released and it has Oklahoma as number 10 in the country for highest church attendance in the nation. We're tied with Texas and Georgia for highest church attendance, right? Kind of the epicenter of Bible Belt Christianity. So when you look at it, it's like we are absolutely killing it, aren't we? The mission of God has been a mad success in Oklahoma. But then as you dig in a little deeper and you pull back some layers, what you realize is that maybe the Christianity that's happening in Oklahoma is more cultural and less biblical. Maybe what's happening in Oklahoma lacks the power and the presence of God. It's not like you have widespread repentance and widespread confession of sin and all these people turning to Jesus. What you actually have is just people going about church kind of like they do another hobby in their life. And I haven't found anyone who has put words to this better than a guy named Mark Sayers. If you're looking for a new book to read, anything by Mark Sayers is good but his book, Disappearing Church, which, by the way, is not about the rapture, <laughs> is a great book. It's a great book to read. And here's what he says. He puts words to this gap that I feel as I look at Oklahoma and think about the Christianity that you and I have experienced. He says, in the West, we are witnessing a number of disappearances. The ongoing disappearance of the Judeo-Christian worldview from Western culture. The disappearance of a large segment of believers who across the Western world are leaving churches, walking away from active faith altogether during their young adult years. The disappearance of a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many Western believers. Now, look at what he says, and this is where I feel it. In its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumerist framework. One of the things that I feel as I'm uh, kind of living in pastoral ministry in Oklahoma is that most of what the, the tide is is what Sayers just said. Most of the tide that we're swimming in as a Christian culture is a disengaged Christian faith characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumerist framework. And he goes on and he says this, and I found this really helpful. He says, some churches, while keeping their theology and their traditional church structures alongside a strategy of making their communications, worship, and aesthetics culturally relevant, find themselves experiencing another kind of disappearance. The church as an entity stays and even grows in size and influence. Yet, the majority of its members disappear annually to be replaced by another class of attenders. The size of church stays the same or even grows, yet the annual turnover of attendees can run at between 60 to 90%. Such turnover may be sustainable in the short term, but one must wonder how such an approach can work long term. 
Such churches are in danger, look at what he says, of becoming what could be called flash mob churches. Churches that are able to harness social networking and energy to gather an impressive crowd but who will soon disappear. Now let me just say this, like what we are after as a church is not harnessing social power to grab a big crowd that in a year from now will just disperse and do other things. That is not what we want. And what we're after is, as Christians trying to live out our faith in Oklahoma is not uh, sporadic engagement. It's not passivity. It's not cultural Christianity. What we're after is actually something deeper and more beautiful and more profound. We want to be a church where God actually moves and does things that we cannot do in our own strength. We want to be a church where people in the city actually feel the presence of Jesus through his body, where it's actually known and felt that there's a different way that we live, there's a different way that we behave, there's a different way that we act that that actually is attractive and beautiful to the outside world. What we need is revival. And I don't know if you feel this gap, but as I look at the church today and I look at the church then in Acts, it just feels like there's this giant chasm that needs to be bridged. Do you feel that? Or am I alone? I think some of you, you're with me, you would feel that. Let's go one level deeper. Don't just think about church as an entity. Think about your own Christian life. Now, I realize not all of you are Christians. You're, some of you are checking things out. And man, continue to do that. This is a safe place for you to check things out. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in the room, think about your own soul for just a minute. Do you ever sense a tragic gap between the type of Christianity that you read about in the Bible in your own life. By the way, I feel that gap in my own life sometimes. Let me just say this and see if you can connect to it. I feel at times a growing level of apathy and a lack of desire for God. I thought when I became a Christian it would almost be like this, this train that you get in and you just sit down, and it'll take you where it needs to go, and you don't really have to work hard or try, but you'll naturally grow in more passion, and you'll naturally grow in more devotion to Jesus. But you know what I found? It's not like that. It's actually like a hike, and there are times where I'm exhausted, and there are times where I'm tired, and rather than waking up just overwhelmed at the grace and love of God, there are days, more days than I care to admit, where I wake up completely disconnected and a heart filled with apathy. Am I the only one? There are times where I drift and all the theology that I know, in the moment, it doesn't matter because what I really want is sin. And it's so frustrating to live inside of this and, and it's so difficult, but what, I'm, what I find is as I live as a Christian, there is this tragic gap, gap that exists and the, the natural thing that my heart does is not drift closer to Jesus. The natural thing my heart does is I drift further away from Jesus. So it's crazy. It's like anything in life. If uh, you don't touch it and if you don't do anything, if you just kind of let it run its course, it never drifts into beauty. It never drifts into wholeness. It always drifts into chaos. It doesn't matter how many times I don't go to the gym, I still have not woken up with a six-pack yet, right? If you don't touch your bank account, if you don't touch your relationships, if you don't touch your walk with Jesus, it, you don't wake up going, man, I am just in love with God and it's amazing. I feel revival. My heart's close to Jesus. I want more of him. I've got a vision of the world that God wants me to have. No, that's not the natural drift of your heart. It's always away. 
So maybe it could be said that you and I need revival, not just the church, capital C, but like you as a Christian, you need a fresh touch from God. You need God to move in a way that the Spirit awakens what might have been cold and laying dormant. You need God to do something new in your heart where all the truth that you know, it becomes beautiful again, and the songs that you sing become full of life again, and the life that you live has, has the vigor that the Spirit of God intended it to have. But I think some of the, th- the options that we give ourselves really are two. It's uh, whenever you find apathy or complacency in your soul, what we tend to do is, one, accept that this is just the way things are. This is just the way things are. As you get older, you can't be that passionate about Jesus. This is just the way things are. Or number two, we deny that there's a problem. There's actually another option. You don't have to accept the way things are today in your world and your life as a Christian, and you don't have to deny that there's a problem. There's a third way, and that's the way of pursuing God for revival. Now, this is actually something that God loves to do. This isn't something that he's, he, he's kind of uh, avoiding. This isn't something that he doesn't want. He wants your heart and your life to be infused with his love, to be infused with his power, to be infused with his nearness, so that the Christianity that you live actually has an impact in the city, at your job, in your relationships. What is revival? Well, J.I. Packer, I think he He describes it really helpfully. Here's what he says. He says, Revival is a work of God by His Spirit. Through His Word, bringing, listen, the spiritually dead to living faith in Christ and renewing the inner life of Christians who have grown slack and sleepy. Revival is God stirring the hearts of His people, visiting them, coming to dwell with them, returning to them, pouring out His Spirit on them to quicken their consciences, show them their sins, and exalt His mercy before their eyes. Does anybody need that? Because I need that. Now, here, here's what's interesting. Um, if, you've, if you've kind of read on revival throughout church history, what does it feel like if you're a part of a revival? What does that feel like? Well, Jonathan Edwards describes this, and I'm just gonna read this to you because I wanna give, give you a vision for what it feels like when God is moving in this way. The Great Awakening in 1730s, 1740s, uh, Edwards is describing this move of God. Here's what he says. He says, the towns seem to be full of the presence of God. Can you imagine for just a second, the, if this was said of us, the city of Moore seemed to be full of the presence of God. The city of Norman, the city of Midwest City seemed to be full of the presence of God. Like not just the church, not just the 9 a.m. service, but the city seemed to be full of the presence of God. What would that feel like? It never was so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There are remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought into them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn. Husbands over their wives. Wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Can you imagine? There's people weeping. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. That's what revival feels like. Hear the same truth, but this time it smacks you in the heart in a new way. And it moves you to tears, and it moves you to action. So, what I'm hearing in the room, even just in some of you are like, amening, and yeah, it's like this is something that we need. Not just as a capital C church, but this is something that you need 
as a Christian. This is something that you need with where you are in your walk with Jesus. So here's the question, how do you pursue revival? And I'll just kind of close with this. How do we actually pursue revival? If, if God did this in the past and he loves to do this today, how do we pursue revival? Well, it's interesting because on the one hand, revival is a sovereign work of God that you and I cannot twist the arm of God to bring about. It says the spirit of God is like wind and the wind blows where the wind wants and the spirit of God moves in only the ways that the spirit of God moves and you can't force it, you can't manufacture it. So on the one hand, it's a sovereign work of God. But on the other hand, way over here, there is something that we can do. We can actually posture ourselves for a sovereign move of God. It's so interesting that the Greek word for spirit, as in Holy Spirit, is also the same word for wind and for breath. Same exact word for wind and for breath. And so the idea here is the Spirit of God is like the breath of God. The Spirit of God is like powerful wind that blows into your life. And so think about this. If you and I are out in the ocean on a sailboat, which I know that we do all the time in Oklahoma, right? If you and I are out in the ocean on a sailboat, what you have to do if you're sailing is you got to hoist the sails. And you got to actually turn them a certain way so that as the wind hits, it takes you where you need to go. So one of the things that we can do is actually posture ourselves for a sovereign work of God by, in a sense, hoisting the sails of our heart for the wind of God, for the power of God, for the Holy Spirit of God to blow and move in our lives. There's something that you can do. So here's the question. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you hoist the sails so that the Spirit of God will blow and move on your soul? Well, let me just give you a few things. Number one, start by being honest with yourself regarding the state and the culture of your own heart. This is something that we should do, especially as we head into 2018. Some of us naturally want to do this anyway as we close out one year and we transition into new, in, in a new year. You have to pause and slow down and take an internal audit of the culture of your heart. How are you doing? What are you doing? What's good? What's bad? What's off? What's broken? Where do you need the grace and mercy of Jesus to meet you in your life? Is it your marriage? Is it with sexual sin? Is it, is it with uh, the way that you just go to work and you're apathetic and you hate it? Where is it that you need Jesus to meet you in profound ways? It's really good for you to slow down and actually take an honest look at what is happening and where you are. It's interesting, the very first question that God asks in the Bible is this, where are you? It's God asking Adam in the garden, not because he doesn't know, but because God wanted Adam to know, I'm searching for you, I'm looking for you. And what God is asking you today is, where are you? Not where's your spouse, not where, where are you? Because he's searching for you and he's looking for you. And so what you can do is actually start to be honest about what's going on. And, and every place where you find sin, and every place where you find brokenness, and every place as you do this internal audit, you realize this is off, this isn't what it should be, this is broken. Those are all incredible invitations to bring that straight to Jesus in prayer. Look at what J.I. Packer says. He says, different concerns drive Christians to renew their vows of consecration to God and seek his face. That is, to cry and sustain prayer for his attention, favor, and help in present need. The occasion might be guilt, fear, a sense of impotence or failure, discouragement, nervousness, exhaustion and depression, assaults of temptation and battles with indwelling sin, ominous illness, experiences of rejection or betrayal, 
longing for God. Can you resonate with anything on that list? If you feel any sort of brokenness in your soul, God is just like arms wide open inviting you. I want to meet you there. I want to bring my grace into your soul and into your life. Revival is not for the strong, it's for the weak. Here's the second thing I would say as a way of hoisting your sails. Stop being content with the status quo. Stop being content with the status quo. I think one of the greatest dangers for Christianity in Oklahoma is just going through the motions and not expecting anything dramatic to ever happen from God. Here's what most of our lives look like. We wake up, we go to work, we drive home, we watch Netflix, we go to bed. We wake up, we drive to work, we drive home, we watch Netflix, and we go to bed. And there's the occasional exciting thing that you might do, maybe a vacation here or there, but that describes the majority of life in Oklahoma. And what God is saying is there's actually, like, don't do that, right? Ephesians 5 is like, don't, don't waste your time. Uh, redeem the time, right? The days are evil. So I would just say this, like, stop being content with the status quo and instead pray that God would start to move in your own life in really fresh and powerful ways. And then finally, number three, Embrace a lifestyle of repentance. Embrace a lifestyle of repentance and faith. What what is that? Repentance, churchy word. It means that we turn from sin and we embrace Jesus. And actually what happens in revival is that that's that's like something that constantly starts to happen. And it's not just us, it's the whole city. And I would say that one of the ways that we can hoist the sails in our own lives is by constantly, as we're evaluating our own souls, finding those things that we drift to that are broken and off and sinful and repenting of those and bringing them to Jesus. So I would just ask you today, what is the thing in you What is the the one thing in your life that Jesus is inviting you to repent of? And not just one time and done, I got that flu shot, now it's out of the way. But how do you actually live a lifestyle of a posture turned towards Jesus in faith? That's the invitation. So let me close with this. As God thinks about you, as he thinks about me, as he thinks about our church, as he thinks about our city, I'm so thankful that God doesn't do what we do where he becomes stoic and apathetic and unmoved. But the story of the Bible, it's not a story of this stoic God unconcerned with what's happening in our lives. The story of the Bible is a God who feels deep love for his people. And despite the ways that they run from God, they run away from him, God is constantly chasing after us and pursuing us. By the way, that's the entire story of the book of Hosea. And what God is doing in this moment, he's looking in your soul and he sees the brokenness, he sees the sin, he sees the apathy, and the good news is that Jesus did not stay in heaven, but out of love he moved towards you. He actually came to this earth because he wanted to be near you. And he lived the life that you couldn't live. And he died on the cross, taking your sin upon himself. And he rose again from the dead. And Jesus, by his death and resurrection, he has done everything necessary for you to have a right relationship with God marked by love. This is a story of grace. You don't have to do anything to deserve it or earn it. He's inviting you to himself. And so wherever you are, if you're in the room and you would say, man, I'm hungry for God, I want more of God, man, great, that's awesome. You're invited to experience that. But if you're in the room and you'd say, man, I'm far from God and there's sin and there's brokenness and I'm scared to even look inside my soul because it's so messy. If that's you, God is looking in your soul and he's inviting you to come to himself because he wants to pour his love out on you.